Welcome to our Friday morning Torah study, and we welcome those who are listening uh, to our internet podcast. We'll begin with a bracha for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tivanu La'Asok B'Divrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, Spirit of the universe, who makes us holy with your commandments and commands us to engage with words of Torah. It is appropriate that uh, we say a bracha with the word Kiddushanu, who sanctifies us, who makes us holy. This morning's parsha is Kedoshim, this whole idea of Kedushah, this idea of holiness, and the way it is transformed in this week's parsha, which is the holiness code in the book of Leviticus. So we're, we're in the triennial division. This can also be read with Parshat Acharimot as a double portion. Um, it is not read such uh, in the third year of the triennial cycle. Instead, we will look at the end of this Parsha. Um, and so let's, let's begin around 1926. I do not. The Hertz is 699. 709 in green, 699 in red. 709 in green. Um, all right, so we've had discussion uh, <clears throat> here about the idea of Kedusha, the idea of this. Um, Force as energy, if you will, this state that is holiness. Things are mostly uh, tahor. They are regular. They are pure, unless they are contaminated somehow, right, by tumah, by impurity. We talked last week at great length about how it seems this state of otherness um, is communicated by some kind of death in life, right? Contact with the potential of death. The possibility of death, the reality of death, that is an otherizing experience. Someone, um, we even talked about things that could be wrong physically, right, that are ind indications of something being wrong, um, that these are all ways that we kind of run into tum'ah, we run into impurity, right, and now it's stative. We're in an otherizing state, childbirth, burying a dead relative, right, having intercourse, like all of these things put us in a state of otherness, but, we, but it's, it's almost like you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're walking along, and then boom, life delivers you contact with other. Not other meaning a person, but like an otherizing event or state. That is the early biblical, early ancient Israelite understanding of Kedushah and Tum'ah, right? Of Tahara, of, pure, of being pure, and of being other. So one removes oneself from the camp until uh, it's time to do the ritual of purification and washing and coming back into the camp and having re-entry into a state of regularity, of normalcy, if you want to use that word. That is, that is the early understanding. But somewhere along the line, there was this group of folk called prophets who were yelling and screaming about the fact that people were performing the rites and rituals about this idea of 
you know, to ah, and being impure and other, and so they bring a sacrifice and they wash their clothes and they spent money to the temple and they took their first fruits and they did everything they were supposed to and they thought that was enough. Being in a state of ritual purity, right? Making sure that holiness can exist, that God's kedusha, God's holiness, God's presence could exist among the people by doing all the rites and rituals in the cult that would keep the, the space, the, the camp, pure and accessible to God's holiness. Because remember, it's repelled by impurity. God's force is repelled by impurity. The prophets come along saying, now wait just a minute. You think you can bring a sacrifice to ritually cleanse the space of wrongdoing and then go out and cheat the laborer who's working in your backyard, who's working in your field? That's not okay. So there are all these behaviors, there's ways of interacting with one another that are not right. And the prophets started to complain loudly that the people were misprioritizing the ritual aspect of Kedusha and begin to develop an understanding of Kedusha as dynamic, not static. Does that make sense? Before, you would kind of bump into you know, tum'ah, impurity, out of an event or an eruption on your skin or a death in the family, right? It kind of happened to you. Even if you want to relate it to maybe it means something's wrong on the inside, something's wrong with you, whatever. But forget the call. But you kind of ran into it or it found you. With the prophets, the early prophets, they really start to shift it to being a dynamic constantly changing state based on how we behave with one another. That is a new idea. That is a kind of a, a new development of the idea of Kedusha, of holiness. And it results in the writing of the holiness code of Leviticus. So the early priestly material is about skin eruption and there's a white hair in it and it's on the building and you have to tear down the building. Right? That's all the early priestly material what we call P1 in the scholarly world. Um, and, but with the influence of the early prophets, um, P2 develops. And that is the holiness code that we're looking at. So that's why the holiness code is all involved with how we treat each other. I have a question which may be sort of a little to the side, but I'm just thinking about if you have something like bombings that happened in Boston and so then you have limbs and blood and all of this but then you have people who rush in to help to me that's holy and and that's a mitzvah so but is that seen as impure and and yes other? yes there's nothing more otherizing than picking up a body part that's been blown off of somebody Right? So we, we have to be clear that we don't live in this system anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't have a temple. Right. We, so this system is not applicable, except to people who trace their lineage to being a Kohen, where they still believe you know, they should refrain from mm -hmm. um, becoming ritually impure through touching a dead corpse. But, but my point is, it never meant bad. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what we have to get out of our Western, yes, yes, the bifurcated mindset. We, we have been raised in the West where we bought the Greek split 
between good and bad, material and spiritual, the ideal and the real, right? That is a Greek idea. And we in the West have inherited that way of thinking. Jewishly, that was never part of the equation. Never. But so I guess my point is that you can have holiness among the impure. But if somebody in this system had done that, had gone to a bus bombing and picked up body parts, they would not be allowed to go to the temple until they had removed themselves from the camp and had taken the time needed to address their state of otherness and then done the rituals. You know, they would need to perform the rituals that would bring them back into the normal. So what I mean... So, so I think, again, we tend to think of Kedusha is good, impurity is bad. So if they've had contact with a corpse, it's bad, but it's a holy act. So, but we're commanded to bury our dead. So there's no way Tum'ah can possibly mean bad. Okay. It so, means other. Um, I'm, just, I'm also thinking that that's probably a really healthy thing as far as mental health, because if you're going to do something... Holy, a holy act and be involved with something is probably wise to take the time and do something to repair what you can before going back to. And then to address what happens to us when we bump up against the, the really, sh- I mean, it's, it shakes one to, to confront mortality or serious illness or any of well, those wasn't things. The, wasn't the first major translation of the Torah into Greek? And I'm sure that influenced... Well, and Aramaic. Aramaic. No, but I mean for for the for the broader Western yes. population, yeah. Septuagint. The Septuagint, which was into Greek, mm-hmm. and so it wouldn't be surprising that somehow the Greek ideas. It would also seem, from what you said, then that pure and impure are really very bad translations. They are. Uh, they I, really I, I, are. We shouldn't use yeah, them because it, in I English try... they just have so many. Other impure things. thoughts. Yeah, you can't you can't say impure is not bad. It because implies it implies such a it does. Yeah. No, it does. And, the nature of the word. and that is not right. And that is not and I'm not saying Tuma wasn't to be avoided. It was. You didn't want to be otherized, right? But there were times where of course you would. You know, when somebody you love was dying, and of course you wanted to have children. You know, so the, there are experiences that are otherizing that are positive and good and wonderful and miraculous and holy and um, we just, this was a system that, that said you, you don't have that bumping up. Kedusha, it can't be in that place. Because Tumah is sometimes caused by sin, right? So there is, there is a kind of Tumah that is, that has a negative. There's different meanings. Mm-hmm. Right, so they're, they are not supposed to go to a cemetery or come into the same room with a corpse. That is one of the three areas we talked last week, the last week I was here, one of the three areas that, that the idea of purity and impurity remains. People who are Kohanim. So he, he shouldn't have been. Oh, oh. So you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't go you're going to worry about contact with a corpse, like in a lot of places they'll have a glass divider that the Kohanim stand behind that they're not in the room with the corpse. But, you know, maybe he had his own ideas about, okay, that's all right, but not walking on them. I who knows? But, but it's because of this idea of there's just three categories, family purity, contact with the corpse, and another one. Um, 
<laughs> that remain uh, outside the system of the of the cult. Zach, well, I, I don't know if you want to go there, but there was a, there was something viral going on Facebook uh, in the past couple of weeks of a picture of a man on El All wrapped in plastic. I don't know if there's any Oh, I saw that. that. Mm-hmm. It was a picture oh, of an Orthodox man who yes. was a Kohen, who was on El All, and he was completely wrapped in plastic. Just imagine a human... A live person? He was yes. a live person. He, well, it's I mean, unclear. It's real. Plastic. It was unclear how he was breathing. The reason he was encased in plastic was because El Al flew over. There, there was a chance that they were going to fly over cemeteries. And there's some oh, halakha that's saying that the the impurity goes all the way. This is what my uh, so there may be different, but my so it was, it was keeping him from being impure. You would think maybe the airplane would would stop. Just in case. I saw the picture of him, and the story that I heard from and again it's the TV. So was that. They're so orthodox, and El Al, it was about seating near women. And El Al will not, El Al will not, like, accommodate that. Well, it's fascinating, right, because then (laughs) to touch a woman... Is like plastic is going to somehow negate the fact that your arm bumped? Like... It's so interesting where we choose to focus our attention, yes? Women are so powerful. Right. <laughs> well, how far can one carry the, as you see, somebody, you know, yourself, this is what the law is, but some people would carry it in so, so far. Yes. That is, it's insane. Yes. It, it, it's, well, because it's so, it's like, where do we want to focus? Which is the point of the holiness code. The point of the holiness code is you can wrap yourself in plastic so that you don't technically touch the woman sitting next to you. Or you can worry about how insulting is that to her that she's, that, I mean, you're like, that's the point of the holiness code. If one takes the ritual requirements too far, say the prophets, then you offer a sacrifice, you're quote-unquote good, right? You're in a state of purity, you've made your sacrifice, it's all good. And then you go slander your neighbor. Like, that's, that's the wrong focus. That is the wrong priority, say the prophets. That comes to bear on the priesthood, who then get it, that they need to start talking about that. Talked about with the question of kashrut versus welcoming people to your table. How do you balance these different needs? Exactly. Exactly. Sitting here and Interesting. Right? That's not interesting. Chevra Kedusha. Because they are making Kadosh the person who's being buried. It's an act of Kedusha to do Tahara, to do ritual purification of the corpse, which technically gives the person doing it tum'ah. And then what happens to them? That person, if we were living in this system, would have to purify themselves. They have to be outside the camp and then purify themselves. But having served on a Hebrew Kadisha, I can tell you, when you're watching television and doing your homework and you get a call, at 10 o'clock, can you come down to the mortuary? We, we, we need, need a Heber Kedisha. Like, you enter a different state. And when you handle a dead body, 
for any length of time. You, 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 it was weird to go home and get back in my jammies and sit on the sofa and watch television. It was weird that there was no holding room for me to go to, to be in a state of, of honoring the otherness that I experienced. There was no, and there was nobody to say, okay, let, let's take you to mikvah. Let's say some prayers. Let's say some psalms. And then let's bring you to school tomorrow. It was just, go finish your homework. Like, that's weird. <laughs> it makes total sense to me that handling a corpse communicates a state of, be, of being other for a while. I mean, that means impurity. I mean, it's not the, that the translation that you said is not necessarily impure. Yeah, the translation is very bad because to me, when I've been exposed to that too, but I feel that there's a sacredness that happens. Absolutely. There's so sacredness that is... Uh, so it's literally pure and impure. Those are, that's the language we have to express these ideas, but, I, but I, we just need to take off our um, judgment. I like to say ritually impure. It just makes it a little clearer for me. Or ritually impure. Ritually impure. Yeah. I prefer I the, the Hebrew term. Otherness works for you, Ruth? Is there yeah. a ritual for going from one state, like yeah. handling the body? Well, yeah, I could have gone to mikvah, you know, presumably. Uh, but where was I going to find a mikvah in Philly at 12 o'clock at night? Or, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I could have gone to the stream. And, you know, but like it isn't normative for us. So, yes, I could have gone and done mikvah as my own way of, you know, honoring the reentry. I just mean it, it isn't, it's no longer a part of our established culture to, to ritually help people across that boundary. We just don't have it. Um, institutionalized. I read an article last week, I think the LA Times, about groups that are forming all over this country. The purpose to get together with these people is talk, and their all denominations talk about death, dying, and to try to take the scariness, the taboo, the shame, whatever that our culture associates with death, to, to make it more part of life and mm -hmm. something that we don't talk about to talk about. Right. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Because we need, we need it desperately, right? We, 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 we warehouse our ill and our dying and our experiences of death. We, we, we cut it off. I mean, we're getting better but with hospice and all those kinds of things. But, but we've been a, a culture that hasn't wanted to deal with death. So we have separated it and, and illness from our regular lives. And, uh, and it's cost us psychically and spiritually, I think, um, a certain appreciation of health and vigor and all of those things to never confront illness and suffering and, and even you death. Talk about illness, it was just more the concept of death, how you got, not so much how you got to death, mm -hmm. just death in general and what happens and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, we're finally allowing ourselves to be a bit curious, <laughs> right, about, about some of that. All right. Uh, so, my parents' generation, uh, and I don't know if that was just an Eastern European cultural thing or really comes from their Judaism. They didn't talk about death. They didn't mention death. And we had a, a cousin who was selling life insurance had a very difficult time talking to potential clients because he couldn't mention death. Is this, is this pre or post-Shalom? 
Hmm? Was this before or after oh, the show? Before the show, of course. In the 30s. That there were, that we, that there were cultural taboos mm-hmm. of, around talking about death. And I don't know whether that's particularly Jewish or... It'd be interesting to, to find that out, wouldn't it? All right, let's look at the Torah text. Let's look at... And we, 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 please remember, we have to read this in its context, yes? Hopefully we've learned how to do some of that by now. Um, but let's remember the context this is in, um, even as we are shocked as moderns at some of what that means, you know, for the lived lives of people back then. Yes, Blanche? Uh, this is a tangent, but we are living through the tragedy in Boston. And on the way here, we heard on the radio that a man was going through Boston with explosives. The people in a certain neighborhood in Boston were told to stay home today. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. all, they're all The whole place is The whole place is unlocked. Nobody can get yeah. in. Yeah. So how do you deal with a catastrophe like that? The possibility. In what way? In five words or less. <laughs> <laughs> I said five words or less. I'll regular on one leg. That's a big question. I mean, are you are you asking how do they manage the anxiety of that? Yes. What do you tell a child? It's very hard. This is life in Israel. That's right. All the time. How do you tell a child? When my daughter asks me when we go through security, Mommy, why do I have to take off my shoes? Mommy, why do we have to take off our belts? Mommy, why do we, you know... How, how you go as far as you can with a child to communicate what needs to be communicated without, I think, giving them too much information so that we don't scare them, right? So some people want to do bad things, and, and these people are trying to keep us safe and not to go, you know, it's hard to, but, but in Israel, you're talking about children who had to put on gas masks, right? And go into, you know, closed bomb shelters for days or weeks at a time. That's, that's their reality. What about in Iraq? What about in Afghanistan? You know, where they witness these things. It's, it's, this world is filled with opportunities, unfortunately, for children's innocence to be robbed by the realities of human capacity for greed and hatred and fear and violence, unfortunately. Um, how do we manage walking around in a world where violent, random, terrible things can happen, that is the practice, right? That is the goal of spiritual practice, is to allow us to stay grounded and open and present and loving and hopeful, even in the face of what can happen. Dr. Abu Alaishi was here this past week. It was one of the most moving talks I've ever heard. You can hear it on uh, on our website, because thank you, Bert um, has put it as a podcast on our website, whose you know three daughters and niece were killed. He he witnessed it. He left their room ten seconds before they were blown to pieces, and by an Israeli shelling of their apartment building, which was a mistake by the Israeli military. To watch a human being like him choose love and hope and openness, and trust, and forgiveness. forgiveness, and beneficence in the face of that, to me, is 
that's the goal. <laughs> now, like, how you get there, hopefully we build communities where people feel held and supported and, right, all those things that can help us be healthier and respond healthier. Um, but but it's, I, I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm not going to even suggest, I know what I would do, but I, but I know that we need to build communities where that's what we encourage through practice and coming together and our love for each other and love for other people's and... That's the best I think we can hope for. All right. Pam, yeah. I know how you'd love for us to spend more time on other things, but why don't you bring us to the text? Okay. You shall not eat anything with its blood. With its blood. You shall not practice divination or soothsaying. You men shall not round off the side growth of your head or destroy the side growth of your beard. You shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or incise any mark on yourself. I am Adonai. Okay, let's stop there. So, lo tochlu al-hadam. So you, you can't eat animals, obviously, with blood in it, right? Blood is the life force, right? We've talked about it as the ritual detergent. You're not allowed to eat an animal in order to get its life force, Right? You are not allowed to drink the life force so that you get more life force. That is, I was going to say, um, carnivorous. <laughs> if you're, if you're well, it's the death and life. It's just, right? The animal is dead, but the blood is the life force. Interesting. Very interesting. So the life, the life force in something dead, which still affects purifying the altar. You dash the blood against the altar, right? Like it's still a purifying agent. It is the ritual cleansing of the space. That happens through the life force of the dead animal. But you can't consume it. You, you can use it to purify the space. You can't use it to consume it, to get more life. Because you may turn into a wild animal. Because when I was a little kid... Interesting. I was acting like a little kid. A vildechaya is what you were exactly. acting like. Exactly. So a wild beast. Yeah. That's, well, that's very interesting, Sarah. What did you call it? Can I call it? A vildechaya. Have you heard that term, Nicole, somewhere in your past? No, but you know what I thought you said? You know what I thought you said? Vildechaya, which is the French... You know, it was in Yad Vashem. It's the, and there was a movie about it. The Vildehive is when the French police, instead of Germans, went door to door in this one yes. particular area of France. And it, it, mostly, it mostly affected children dying and going on the trains and to their death and parents and all that. And um, Chris and Scott Thomas starred in the movie uh, Sarah's Key. So, we shall not consume blood in our, even though we're allowed to eat animals, right? We are not allowed to, to consume their blood. Um, so, uh, also with divination or soothsaying. So, all of these things that also could probably be tied to some neighboring rituals of other people's. You Israelites, off limits, right? Not, not allowed. 
all of these are grouped together. Probably this it gives us a hint. You know, scholars, it gives them a hint that these were all grouped together because they were all part of rituals of other peoples surrounding the Israelites, including rounding off the side growth of the head. Here's where we get. That's what's here. Pe'ot. Lo tashchit et pe'at zkanecha. You shall not cut the pea. Right? This is also the same word for the corner of the field. You don't harvest the pea. You don't, you know, you don't. Take the peya. You don't take the peya. Peot, peas, and Yiddish, right? So, so that's why they don't shave here. Um, you shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or incise any marks on yourself. This is where people get the idea of tattoo, right, being forbidden in our tradition. Most likely, I mean, if, if you've studied any, um, you know, more you know, Aboriginal cultures, there's always tattooing or marking as somewhere in the tradition of, of being a mark, of having passed through some kind of ordeal, right? So at, at puberty, you know, and you have to go through this trial as a boy, you know, henna on the hand. You know, there's, just, there's just lots of, lots and lots of ritual um, throughout terrestrial human culture that has to do with scarring. If you make a gash, it scars, Right, so in Africa, there's this whole tradition of scarring, you know, that is about making those gashes so that it makes a pattern of scars. So that is forbidden to ancient Israel. Uh, about a week ago, I, I went Gashed to the gym, and no, and the woman who was standing here taking the cards, right? She was wearing a T-shirt, and on her arm, she had a huge tattoo, big, like like four inches of a Star of David which I thought was a little strange. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to tattoo something. A little ironic. I, th right? I thought it was ironic. It, there like, there was an interesting one that came up for me recently. Someone, and, and I don't know how popular it got, but, but a few years ago, someone came to me um, distraught because it, they, someone in their family had gotten a tattoo of the number of their ancestor or their grandparents that were murdered in the Shoah. Yeah. Oh, and like there was just such this deep kind of wrestling with like what does it mean? No tattoos. Okay, we understand that this meant what it meant in its time but it's been carried forward in rabbinic law to mean no tattoo at all but like but, but how could I not want to honor in that way my grandparent? You know, I really want to do it but, but so this very deep kind of cultural clash about, you know, some of these things that are so ingrained in our culture, and yet, if we think about it, like... Yeah, we cut our hair, it's in the same paragraph, nobody freaks out. Nobody freaks out when we cut over here, right? Or as beard is shaved. It's very interesting what remains and what doesn't. Well, Zach? I, 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 I'm not prepared to say uh, what they are, but I know that there have been responses saying that you can have tattoos. I, I know that it's a debate, but I, so I don't know where the sources are, but I wanted to offer that. Um, what's that? As long as your tattoo is in Hebrew. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I was, I'm curious about the, I want to back up to the divination and the soothsaying. Yeah. My understanding is that um, Moses practiced some of that. And God then, forbid. Uh, and, then pro and then some of the future prophets will also practice some of it. I'm just curious if you can talk about that. Yes. Or correct me. When it's God, it's not divination or soothsaying. <laughs> Essentially, right? But when, but then, but then, some of the the urim and tumim is not divination. 
What is divination in the first place? I don't even know what you're talking You read tea leaves. Right. It's like magic. Oh, exactly. you, you kill an animal and you look at its kidney and liver and you see the shape and the position and then you know something about the person bringing it. So, astrology. Or certain kinds of astrology. Well, or not, not science. Numerology and all of that. It's very close. I mean. But it's more like throwing of sticks and reading mm-hmm. it, from my understanding, or like hitting a, a rock and. You know, bringing forth water or something like that. Oh, for instance, hitting a rock and bringing forth water. Let's just say. Right. Um, so, when it when it's God saying, "Cast the urim v'tumim," it's not divination or soothsaying. So clearly, it means when it's related either to other gods or to practices outside the cult of Israel. I read commentaries. And, and to be clear, the Nachash. This is, there's theories that says one of the reasons it was to be destroyed was because the people were understanding it to be an, an agent of divination or an agent of healing that was now challenging the fact that it was yud vav behind all that. Right. That the Nachash yeah. became dangerously misinterpreted yeah. by Israelites. What is the Nachash? The, the, the snake, the, the copper serpent of Moshe oh. Oh. that later gets destroyed because the people... It, they, they also, like, build... In the camp, don't they build like a, a stick with a snake on it? And the, I forget, it, some magic happens. I forget exactly. With, what. Yeah. What? I've seen. I, I, and it stops the play. It heals the snake bite. Yeah, yeah, right. It heals. I've seen some modern commentaries on this that relate the don't tattoo or make ashes in your body to the fact that your body belo- your body belongs to God. Right. And the whole idea of, of taking care of ourselves physically as being uh, a holy part of holiness. Right, rabbinic. I don't know if that, that comes from this or from other things. So it's a, it's a rabbinic interpretation. Well, it also, but in 28, it concludes with, I am on an eye. So it's not that much of a stretch to say, you shall not make gashes or any marks. I'm God. Not Baal. I'm God, not Asherah. Mm-hmm. I'm yud heh It doesn't yeah. say I'm, it's Because English, we, we struggle. It doesn't say I'm God. Right. It says, I need yud heh Right. Right, so let's be clear. Right, you shall not do that. You shall not do this because I'm Yudhe Vafe, not Asherah. Yeah. So we're just missing the word because, it, you know, it's just. Well, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you an article if you choose to read it, um, so that you all know kind of from what I prepare. It's from the back of this book. This book has the JPS um, version uh, with its commentary. This one by Levine. Uh, each uh, each uh, volume has its own commentator. Um, there's excurses in the back. Excursus 6 is about the concept in the Bible of holiness, of Kedusha. So you can look there at some of this idea that, we get, that gives us this language. Holiness is rooted in God. It's like, what does that mean? You, know, you shall be holy because I, Adonai, am Kadosh. I am holy. Um, so that's an interesting idea right there, right? So, um, and then it develops into a verb, Kidesh. So to sanctify, right? So then it evolves into a verb. Um, but it seems that there is, a, there is something about it being rooted in yud heh vav this holiness thing. Can, All right. I, can I hop in um, just real quick about the blood? In the previous portion I was reading, I just thought it was so interesting that I wanted to get your opinion because it says, you shall not partake of the blood of flesh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it doesn't say, Chaim, it says nefesh. 
but nothing. Soul. Soul, soul is in the blood. I thought that, you know, I think of the soul in my body somewhere, in our bodies, but in the blood. But the nephesh, the soul is in the blood. So par again, we're dealing with a 3,000-year-old with a tradition, 3,000 years of the evolution of Hebrew. Nephesh, in this context, did not mean soul. There was no soul. There was no body and a soul in it. That's a later interpretation of nephesh. Nephesh was the self, the unit that was all of it, including its life force. So body and soul, it was all one. It was all one. There wasn't an understanding that you separated those. And this was the neshama, and this was the goof, right? It, it was your, you were a nephesh. You were a self. And that was, there wasn't yet this idea of the neshama that's kind of separate, right? When I think of nephesh, I think of an animal's soul. So the rabbis and later Kabbalah develop levels of soul. Nephesh is the animal soul. That's much later than this. Yes. So, so, this, so I think this is closer to that idea of the life force. The essence. Maybe essence is a good word. That, that's a, I like my new translation of nephesh. The animal's essence is in its blood. You can't kill something in order to take its essence. You See, can that's eat. That, I find that so interesting. Whatever you want to call it, that right. essence is not in the heart or in the you know in the brain. It's in the blood. Sure, because if you if the blood pours out, it dies. And also yeah. the blood is connected to the brain and the heart and every part of you. It, right. It's not just in, located in one spot. It's coursing through every single. It's just that it's a it's that <clears throat> intangible thing that's in the physical. Yes. <clears throat> Mind. Yes, which is fascinating. Thing, you know, it's it's also used to cleanse the ritual space. Yeah. Right? It's just, wow. Get, getting back to Nefesh, a newborn, a little human being, in my family was referred to as a Nefeshal. Interesting. Did that and stop at a certain thing. age? It's not just the body. And it's, it's like a little person, a little menchula. And... <laughs> and as a nephesh? Yeah, but you use nephesh. Nephesh. Yeah. Nephesh. A little. A little. A so, so, was there any age at which you stop using that about a child? I think got big. <laughs> when they got big. Okay. Well, then you would take off the ol. It's a technical. They'd just be a nephesh, right? Yeah. Just not nephesh. All right. Um, all right. Somebody want to read it 29? Do not degrade your daughter and make her a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land be filled with depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Go on. Do not turn to ghosts and do not inquire of familiar spirits to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. You shall fear your God. Okay, so... I am I want, I there you. if I didn't pay particular attention. <laughs> yes. Yes, Reuben. Right here. So, exactly. So, um, harlotry was forbidden, right? So, we, although we are horrified to see, don't 
don't allow, you know, don't cause your daughter to become a harlot. We're, we go, what? You know, but like, yay, <laughs> that, that ancient Israelite fathers were forbidden from allowing that for their daughters, right? Thank God. But the reason given here is, has nothing to do with the daughters. That's right, because it'll fill the land with harlotry, which is not a good thing. This is all about how our behavior and our communal behavior impacts the land. Our behavior, our kadusha or lack of it, um, impacts the land. And if you toxify, no, what's the verb for toxify the land enough, what will happen? And what happens then? It will spit you out. You will lose a war and you will be exiled from the land. Is that what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? That was outright destruction by God. Yeah, but it was a city of whatever. Yeah, so God, God destroyed it. But in the ancient Israelite understanding, they weren't worried about God destroying the land. You know, you're, they were worried that if they, toxif- if they toxified the land with their behavior, then the land would make sure that they, well, and of course that's tied to God, of course, yeah, but, but they would be spit out. Hmm. All right. So it's worse than just your daughter's been sold into harlotry, and it's worse that it, that it increases harlotry. It's that it, 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 the land, right? Like it's going to impact our ability to be here as a people, Laura. So was I imagine that that desecrating your daughters was a thing that happened back then. Oh yeah. Is, so it happens now. Why it happens now. I was just talking yeah. to somebody about how horrified we are when we see, you know, if you sell your daughter into indentured servitude, you know, she must either be married to the the guy or married to his son or redeemed, and like it's. Like, we're horrified by reading that. And it is horrifying. And Rabbi Rubin gave a sermon how many weeks ago about human trafficking. Now, lots of families are selling their daughters into slavery or harlotry and their sons you know, into slavery. You know, these Filipino young men that are sold into you know, some countries to be playthings for men. And... I mean, not that it's worse for a boy to have it happen than a girl. I'm just saying, like, it, it's just, it's, if you start listing the ways and places, Darfur, you know, where they're taken as children and told to cut off the limbs of their parents and with machetes and that buys their, you know, loyalty to the army that they're now. I mean, it's just, it's horrifying what we allow to happen to our children in, in this world. Leviticus says, all right, we get it. You can't afford 10 children and you're going to, have to sell one of them into indentured servitude. She has rights. She must become a wife. She can't stay chained to a wall to be your plaything. So it's, it's all contextual, but it's, it, whenever I get really distressed by what I, I see here, I try to go to that place in me that should be distressed about what I allow to happen in this world without challenging it. I try to use my distress about how horrified I am about the fact that this existed at all to say, and what am I doing to, to lift my voice up and to stop human trafficking in my day, which I know is happening. It's not like I don't know. Bert? The, the Hebrew, the, um, verse 29, is, the English says, do not degrade your daughter and make her a harlot. Mm-hmm. Is the implication that that's the 
only way you would be degrading your daughter? Or no. Or just saying, don't degrade your daughter, period, and has to do with respect of fathers for their daughters? It's one of the ways you can chilel your daughter. It's one of the chilul but, but, it, but it's much ways. broader than harlotry, yes. what it's saying. There. Yes. You shall not profane or defile her. At all. At all. One way, way is through way. Right. harlotry. There are other ways you can defame. That's pre- that's pretty intense. Given it is the, the very patriarchal society. I mean, just in terms of respect. Right. It's it's considered depravity. Like yeah. right, the the land will be filled with not just harlotry, but depravity if you do that. That's depraved. It's sick. It's you know to allow that to to become the norm. All right. So um, we are. Let, let's go. So you shall rise before the aged. I want to jump to verse 32 that Reuben pointed out. You shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. This statement is posted in every Israeli public bus right above those seats in the front that for us say, hey, Andy, can please give your seat to whatever. This is one of the ways, like, I, I just, without even realizing what was happening, got it, what it meant to be in Israel is that it didn't say, please read for a handicapper. It said, you shall rise before... Right, it had a verse of Torah on the bus. <laughs> right? Cool. You gotta love that. It's just like, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, th- this is what it means to, to be in Israel, to be in the land of our people. Is There's a verse from Leviticus on the bus. Do people do it, though? Yes. Yes. I mean, they do. I was brought up this way, but certainly it doesn't For pregnant women, for... Yeah. You know, oh, the it aged. When I was pregnant, people would look at me oh. and give me a seat or open a door for me. I mean, it. Carry your I'm groceries. It, it, I think there's Wait, a lot of crap out there and people who don't do these types of things, but chivalry does yeah. still exist. That's a sure. I would stand up for an older person. I always do. I do. I Ruth? When we lived in Holland in the late 50s, early 60s, it was taken for granted that on the buses, if an old person came, you would give up your seat. And I often remember seeing people who did not do that, and these old ladies, like they must have been 80, with their king, who were so physically fit, would take their king and just kind of do it on the person and go, and the person would get up and... Yeah, good. Shame them into yeah. Yeah. get your tuchus off the seat and give it to this other person. Right. Uh, all right. We're gonna. I want to close out our reading this morning. Probably the point has been made, but I think it needs to be emphasized that only in Israel can you ride the bus and learn Torah at the same time. Right. Right. Love that. And I love it that they put a verse of Torah over the seat for a people. 80% of whom are secular Jews who don't feel bound by this. You have to love that. But it's from Torah, so stand up. Love that. All right. So let's look at, um, speaking of um, Dr. Izeldin Abu Ailish, who addressed us. This, this is, you got to love this. 33. Somebody. When strangers reside with you in your land, you shall not wrong them. The strangers who reside with you Bless shall you. be to you as your citizens. You shall love each other, each one as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, Adonai, am your God. 
You shall not falsify measures of weight or capacity. You shall have an honest balance, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin. I had an eye on your God who freed you from the land of Egypt. You shall faithfully observe all my laws and all my rules. I am on an eye. All right. You shall, when a stranger resides in your land, you shall not wrong the stranger. You may not treat them as other. Where's the religious right now? Oh, right? right? The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, yod heh am your God. Don't you ever, Israelite, say somebody's other. You've been other. You started as other. And only because of me, says God, are you a people free in your land to create a kind of society that will not make someone else other. Is it mentioned elsewhere? Yes, many times. One of the most repeated uh, commandments in Torah. You shall love the stranger. You shall not, you know, harm the stranger. You shall, you know, protect the stranger. This is, but you shall love the stranger kamocha, as yourself. Why would you treat someone differently than the way you would arrange things for yourself? I mean, and of course, Torah understands that. Of course, we all want to do that. Of course, we're all going to treat you know, somebody different differently, right? That's our, our nature as human beings. So Torah is here to say it's okay that you feel that way, but you, can't, but you can't do it. You can have the impulse, but you're not allowed to do it. Okay, so is this about um, treat others how you would want to be treated? And you're by law not allowed to think poorly or um, I don't know, gossip, whatever, take it to yeah. whatever things these are. And and because that becomes impure if you if you do not treat this stranger the same way you want to be treated. Yes. Holiness, a life of holiness, a life of godliness demands that we treat even the stranger, right? Even the one we're most apt to otherize as ourselves. Yes? I've heard one that does not necessarily mean that you treat the other person. Some people say it means you treat the other person the way you want to be treated. I've heard another take that said, don't treat others as you want to be treated. Their tastes may be different. What this says is love the person, understand the person, and treat them appropriately as loving them. To what love looks like. Right. Sometimes what other people want is not what you want for yourself. So there's a difference. Well, if you look what's going on right now with with the happening in the Muslim and, and the, uh, the Western society and the uh, Eastern society, it's pretty difficult to say. Because if the stranger wants to take over your land, that's a different story. I mean, where do you put the so, boundaries? Okay, so, so let's be clear. This is talking about a free nation, an independent nation, among whom live strangers who are participating. And this is not saying love the conqueror. This is saying, when you have your own land and you create your society, make sure the society you create is one that treats all of its citizens, everyone who lives there, with love and respect. Everybody. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. You don't have to love the, the invading army. 
No, it's not necessarily the way it happened, but if the, uh, the one who lives with you have chicken, I mean, children like rabbits, uh, they, uh, before you know it, they become overpopulated and you become a minority. I mean, I'm putting you a question. <laughs> so what's the question? The question is that how does one, I mean, I'm having a lot of discussion with my husband right now, very difficult, but uh, it, it is very, as much as I would like to share everything that I have, he, he, is, he is very radical in his thinking very extremely radical, and he sees the threat right now in the... Uh, You're talking about Israel, right? No, he, Israel, or here in the United States, it, so, or what's happening in Europe, or what's happening... So, Diane, your husband survived the show off from Hungary, yes? Yeah. Right. So, it is very understandable how someone like him could react consistently out of fear, and out of trauma, and out of loss, and out of rage, and out of grief, and out of powerlessness. That is not the norm. That's not normal. And we are to try to build a society where that's not normal, where he's not subjected to that kind of trauma, to have that kind of reaction, right? I understand and respect his fear, right? I understand that. And we're to build a society and a community where that, is, that doesn't happen. And then to love someone like your husband through it. With what? With whatever he believes, with whatever's going on for him, that we love him through that. I, I'm, I'm trying to come up with, with not to be fast, but some, it's kind of different. How can you possibly, that I can. to someone who's watched their family be dragged out and shot and put in a shallow grave, like his parents were? His parents, grandparents. Right. How, how can you rebut his experience, right? We... Sometimes we have to just love people where they are, how they are, and say, out of his pain right now, he's locked in that fear and that pain. Maybe someday he will move. Maybe he won't. But our obligation is to provide a safe and loving community for him to be a part of and, and understand that his reality is different from ours. It just is. The same way a child is abused has a different, right, grows up often to be a, an adult who doesn't love, who can't love, right, because that was taken from them. They were warped in some way that, that, is, that is not changeable. We have to love them anyway, appropriately. If they become psychopaths, you need to, to put them somewhere where they can't hurt people, right? And so... Is this fear that the Holocaust is going to happen again right now? Well, he sees signs of the, what's happening in our society, what's happened in Hungary. Because right now in Hungary, the, the society was happening with the anti-Semitism. It is worse than the Civil War right now. It's coming back really bad. Yeah. So he sees the sign of what happened so we, around the world. That's so we either, we either live in fear or we live into hope. I mean, I, that's what I learned this past week from Dr. Abu Elish. We either live in fear or we live in hope. I want to read to you quickly from Rabbi Shefagol. When I have established a holy foundation for my life, then my inner life and outer actions can come into alignment with God's love for all of us. As I move into the world, I can become a servant of that love. And here is the challenge of Kedoshim. 
The divine holiness that is in us must be expressed in the shaping of our lives. When I am connected to that divine core of holiness, then I have reverence for my parents where I come from. I protect and cherish the sacred times of rest. I leave the corners of the field, a portion of my earnings for the poor and the stranger. I do not steal or lie and swear falsely. I pay my workers fairly and on time. When I am connected to that divine core of holiness, then I do not curse the deaf or put obstacles before the blind. I am fair to rich and poor alike. I don't gossip. I cannot ignore the violence in my world. I don't hold grudges or hatred in my heart. When I am connected to that divine core of holiness, then I tell the truth even when it's hard. I love my neighbor as I would myself. I keep separate what needs to be separate for its integrity. When I eat, I am mindful of resources. I live in awe of the holiness of our world and the presence of the stranger awakens compassion in me. Kadoshim gives me these measures so that I can examine my life and see just how connected I am to the divine core of holiness within me. The disconnection from that core, the disconnection from that core will manifest in apathy, mistrust, despair, and destructiveness. The spiritual challenge of Kedoshim is to reconnect to the divine perspective within us, to see through God's eyes, hear with her ears, and open the great heart of compassion that can guide our every thought, word, and deed. Absolutely, because I just happened. <laughs> to have made copies of this for you. And uh, as I pass that around, I will share um, the words of the poet Ruth Brim of blessed memory. Kedoshim, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. In the center of the Torah is the book of Leviticus. In the middle of Leviticus is the chapter on holiness. At the core of the chapter on holiness is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You are in the midst of Israel trying to begin by loving your neighbors. But before you can love your neighbor, you must have achieved love of yourself. Before you can revere your parents, you must have struggled to fulfill the demands of parenthood yourself. Before you can love a stranger, you must have been a stranger in a harsh land. Lord, how can we possibly experience enough and understand enough to love as you love? From the deep center of our beings, we pray. Lead us toward wisdom and humility. Teach us compassion and understanding. For we long to feel the holiness of your presence at the inmost center of our lives. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>